they would do it on purpose to see if they could get a rise out of you, if they could like make you feel uncomfortable. So you had to learn really quickly how to like shut off expression to be like, okay, tell me how that felt. Did you like, and then go oh through the counseling gosh, principles yeah. of that. So I realized really quickly that counseling wasn't the route that I wanted to go. Um, and my professor at the time, I was finishing my sports psychology program. And he was like, well, why don't you work with the military? I'm like, fuck that. Like, no, thank you. I don't want to work with military at all. I just wanted to work with athletes at the time. And he had put in my resume for me. And a week later, I get a call from West Point saying, hey, we would love to interview you out. Um, I had just undergone, undergone an eptopic pregnancy at that time. Another episode of the 38 Challenge podcast, episode 25 with Dr. Jess Garza. I'm read a little bit of Jess's experience. So <laughs> Jessica Garza is an accomplished global business sport and transformational coach, speaker and author who holds a PhD in performance psychology, a master's in clinical mental health and a master's in sports exercise psychology. She has worked with professional and collegiate athletes, congressional staff, FBI, CIA, U.S. Special Forces, and Dr. Garza helps her clients develop mental readiness, emotional intelligence, and self-confidence to optimize their potential both on a personal and professional level. Super impressive resume, <laughs> super impressive uh, person. I wanted to read this and then ask you, first of all, thank you for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it. So if you're in an elevator and someone says, like, what do you do? Like, what does Dr. Jess Garza do? What's your pitch? I help people to their highest potential. I help people understand themselves their limitations and what's causing them to prevent them to being what they want to do or who they want to be essentially is that and it doesn't matter what profession that they're in it applies to every elite athlete business executive mom dad child any any realm that we're in it applies to yeah and i think everyone can relate to that right there's mm -hmm. always um we always feel like we're being held back and what are ways that we can unlock that potential? So looking yeah. forward to, to getting in with that. So how did you start into all of this? I was a gymnast as a kid. Um, I had major mental blocks as an athlete, as a gymnast. At that time, it was either you got over it or you quit the sport. Um, I got pretty high up in gymnastics, but could never get over the whole mental aspect of the game or of the sport. And then ended up having... My coach, so you've heard the whole scandal of USA Gymnastics with mm -hmm. all of the um, victims. I was one of those girls, mm. um, but not with the doctor, with my coach. And so I, my senior year, I was getting ready to apply for a scholarship. And he had like touched and molested me in a way that was not appropriate. That was in December. I remember quitting the whole sport. The sport was like my love, wanted to do it for the rest of my life ended up quitting and switching to soccer instead, ended up getting a scholarship for soccer within three months of like quitting the sport. Mm -hmm. So went out to Arizona. Did you play soccer before? Uh, for a couple of years, like two. Okay, wow. Yeah. So not, you're an athlete. <laughs> so quickly adapted, yeah. um, which was awesome. And I got to go out there for a little while. And I in my college, or my college, in my high school, there was a little paragraph that was about sports psychology. And the moment that I read that in my psychology class, I knew that that's what I wanted to do forever. Mm. So I knew in high school where I wanted to go. And so when I switched to soccer, I had looked at some um, schools that had sports psychology or that could potentially go. 
I wanted to, I started off with pre-med and then switched over to psychology. Smart. Yep. And then, so now I have, if I ever wanted to, I have some to, like credits to go towards that. Right. Um, finished college in three years and jumped into my master's right away because super eager to get started. Mm -hmm. And I had, did an intern with a lady who was a head sports psych for USA Gymnastics um, team at that time, which I fell in love with it. I had also done a dual program where I was in counseling and did not like that at all. Like mm -hmm. I just didn't like to put labels on people. I think our world likes to put labels and especially in counseling, it's, well, you're depressed or you have OCD or you have insert whatever diagnosis mm. that it is. Yeah. And that label becomes a crutch. Yeah, who they are. Yeah. And I had a really hard time putting that down on paper because then people identified with it. So I wanted to look at what was right about people, not what was wrong and how to elevate the lesser strengths to better strengths. Um, and at that time, my professor, I was working in the jail systems in Arizona. I happened to be pregnant at that time, um, just showing. And I was working with domestic violence, sex offenders, and um, substance abuse. So the more I showed, the more the sex offenders would talk about their descriptive um, incidences with like their youths that they had violated. Mm -hmm. And so I started to get pretty jaded fast. Yeah. And given my experience of being violated, it just, I couldn't get over it. And it just it felt toxic to me because we would go into the jail systems and have classes with those guys. But I also learned pretty quickly. And they were telling you the experience of when they molested children? Correct. Oh and gosh. they would do it on purpose to see if they could get a rise out of you, if they could like make you feel uncomfortable. So you had to learn really quickly how to like shut off expression to be like, okay, tell me how that felt. Did you like, and then go oh through the counseling gosh, principles yeah. of that. So I realized really quickly that counseling wasn't the route that I wanted to go. Um, and my professor at the time, I was finishing my sports psychology program. And he was like, well, why don't you work with the military? I'm like, fuck that. Like, no, thank you. I don't want to work with military at all. I just wanted to work with athletes at the time. And he had put in my resume for me. And a week later, I get a call from West Point saying, hey, we would love to interview you out. Um, I had just undergone undergone an eptopic pregnancy at that time. So I was in the hospital when I got the call and the doctor's like, no, you cannot go because the interview was like two days following. And I'm like, well, I think I'll be fine. So I got wheelchaired onto the plane and the test at West Point to become a sports psych or to be like a cognitive performance trainer was you had to go the stairs that were like four stories up. And I'm like, uh, I just got out of the hospital. There's no way that I can go up there. Can we like take the elevator instead? So failed test one. Oh, there you go. So that was I'm nice, sure they, they right? Might, yeah, they, 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 they might understood. understood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't take no, any you pain meds, right? Up these stairs, yeah. <laughs> so I get in there and I fell in love with the culture. Like it was the most incredible experience. Like the campus was beautiful. Being around, like when you really think about the altruisticness of the military in itself and like the selflessness and what those families undergo, it's it's insane. Unless you've been in it, see it, and lived it, it's really hard to explain to the normal person mm -hmm. what that's like. Um, so I was like, yep, I'm done, I'm in. And then they gave me an option of where I wanted to go. And I picked Fort Bragg. So I got to work with special forces as like my first assignment out there mm. with a nine month old baby <laughs> at that time. Um, which was pretty cool. I mean, we went out there just her and I. So I had 
Her dad wasn't in the picture at that time. And it was amazing. Now, having to learn the culture language in itself is completely different. The way that they talk, the acronyms, all the things. So it was a giant learning curve. Um, But that's how I got started into all this work. So started off as I saw it in a book, then went down the counseling route, was like, no way. Thought I was going to just work with athletes, and it switched over to military. And from the military, I worked with them for about 12, maybe 13 years, and just here the last two years, stopped working with them and opened up my own business doing sports psychology, which was its first mind gym here in Cedar Park. Mm-hmm. So 2,600 square foot um, cognitive facility. Yeah. I cannot wait to show you. That's awesome. So yeah. one of the points you made, so what's your opinion on counseling now? Like, obviously, you didn't want to be a counselor, I think, because of, like you said, the position that you're in. Do you do you find it helpful for people um, who might need it? It's extremely beneficial. I The way that I didn't like counseling, and I think this probably is not, like, the most appropriate, but that's okay. It's okay. I, I th- counseling is useful. I think that the world of counseling hasn't changed enough, and I that – that's on the counselors and the counseling, the way that we teach it, hasn't adapted to people. It's just stayed on skill base. So it's like, okay, we're well, only going to do CBT with you, a cognitive behavioral therapy. We're going to talk through this. But if I can feel what you're feeling on an empathetic level, if I can really understand the person and hear it besides what I just know in a book to teach you, you dive in deeper and really understand the limitations of what that person's experiencing rather than just saying, okay, well, we have to flip to this page and we have to do this yeah. worksheet. Oh, you're not this, so you got to be this. Correct. Yeah. Which that I have a hard time with. Counseling is 100% useful. I still do counseling. Um, I have, I've, I do counseling, but it's in a different form. Mine's more through energy, mm-hmm. which I've shifted more towards like energy in the body and where is it being stored and how does that impact a lot of my belief systems rather than the counseling, because I'll sit with the counselor and I'm like, well, you should have asked this. And if you would have asked that, then we would have been like two steps down this road. So I'm psychoanalyzing the person across from me, which is one of my downfalls that yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I know how to do pretty it's like quickly. It's like a game of chess. Like, it is. How do I break this counselor down? <laughs> yes. So for me, it was hard to do counseling in that setting because of the psychoanalytical piece of it. So I found that energy work has been more beneficial than anything else. Yeah. And I think the traditional view on mental health is like, especially like with veterans, it's like, okay, and military is like, how do we get this person to go to talk therapy? And it's like, that's hard. Yeah. And it's like one, it's hard. It's like two, is it that beneficial when there's so many things that are out there? So our approach at the 38 challenge is how do we empower people to want to reach out for help? And how do we empower people for them to know that being vulnerable and, and seeking help is actually the strongest thing you can do, which I, truly believe i do too and there are some incredible counselors that i know and even with the military so i was married to a veteran as well um he actually just retired here a couple weeks ago we ended up getting a divorce last year because of the whole mental health stigma that he couldn't overcome Mm. i can't force somebody to get help um as much as i wanted to but when it started to impact the kids because they can get post or secondary ptsd from the veteran And it's not just always a veteran. Sometimes it's like the partners in the relationship that obviously have its own struggles. So you have an interrogator and a psych. It was was like a war game constantly at home because he couldn't get out of his own head. Love him to death. Um, Still hope the very best for him. He's an incredible guy. Just there's a lot of veterans that still 
are stuck and it is a very rigid and hard pattern to overcome and they can lose and do lose so much even with a loving family that is there to support all the way through. So I am a big proponent of the veterans getting assistance as well because I firsthand have that experience. Yeah, and there's there's we talk about this a lot. There's so many resources for veterans to tap into. Like so many. There's so many. Yeah. So the problem, like we don't need another helpline. We don't need another program. We just need to empower people and show people that, hey, like this is actually strong. And like by you not seeking help, like you are hurting everyone around you and and, and yourself. Because right now they they view it as like, well, if I do that, then like I'm weak and Mm -hmm. like I'm not going to be able to protect. But when in actuality, it's the complete opposite. Yes. And I've seen firsthand from a lot of the guys that I've worked with that if I do go down that route and I... So if we're looking at it from a claims aspect for like VA benefits Mm -hmm. that I'm just using the system and they see how so many other people need that than themselves. And so that's a a cognitive distortion as well that often prevents them from getting more help. Some people then say, well, we'll use it to their benefit. And it's like, well, if I do go into counseling, then this part of my VA benefit can go up. Um, But in our case, it was like other people need it more than me. And so that was a really hard um aspect for him to overcome too yeah and intentions are never and are, are never in a bad place right it's right like it's never it's never coming from a selfish ever it's never coming Correct. from a, a selfish place of heart it's coming from just like you said the stigma that is that is taught so when you were in fort bragg working with special forces like how did you see this this stigma play out so the guys that i got to work with were really good at compartmentalizing Um, extremely good at compartmentalizing due to the nature of their job. Mm -hmm. When they got back, a lot of them, um, not just special forces, we're talking because I also switched over to big army too, eventually to work with that population and just about everybody on that installation I worked with that the common denominator was just drinking our cigarettes. That that was the relief. Like I had to have some type of stimulant to either distract or to release. And if I didn't have either of those two, then it would revert back to like aggression, irritability, or depression. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So with all your work that you do, you know, working, have worked with special forces, I'm I'm sure you still do um, some of that. And then working with high performers, how important is vulnerability into the work that you do? It's everywhere. I think it's a blanket for just about everything that we do as a practitioner, as um, an individual that gets to work with all these athletes. The athletes that are the most vulnerable often reach a higher level of potential because they're open Mm. to seeing failures as success or allowing to have that uplift themselves and others along the way too. So when I talked about earlier, like I didn't like putting like labels on people. I wanted what was right with them and how to go bigger, faster for unlocking potential. When you're vulnerable, you're unlocking everything to be able to see like, okay, this is the area that I need to improve. And it launches you up or forward to allow you to get to the next level, whatever that is, or to help other people. Sometimes our experiences aren't for us. Like your experience with your brother, it's, I mean, the amount of movement that you've been able to make, that wasn't your story. Mm-hmm. That was for somebody else's story. It could have been. It is your story. I'm not taking that away from you. But yeah. that experience may have also been for somebody else who just had a family member that was lost that didn't have the strength that you did to talk about it, that was ready to do the same act of committing suicide of, on some level for him, his own self. Right. But 
you speaking out could have saved that life. So sometimes our experiences are for other people, but we don't understand why we undergo them at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think it's interesting you say that. I've been thinking and reflecting that a lot. So Matt's two years coming up in February. Oh, wow. Um, and so many people are like, I think I had a conversation with a guy and he was like, hey, um, I'm just gonna be super, super straight, like straightforward with you. He's like, at some point, like you have to let this go. And I was like, oh dude, like, I think you've completely, um, and I, like, I totally understood where he's coming from. Yeah. But I was like, I have like, I still grieve and I will grieve for the rest of my life. Sure. But it's like, I'm not doing this for Matt anymore. In the beginning I was doing it to honor him. Yeah. Now 38 and those numbers and his story is just a platform to help other people, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it's not a little brother grieving anymore. It's. Right. I've seen the impact that this story and then this, this message can help people. And that is what drives me and gets me up in the morning. And um, not that I don't miss my brother every single right. day because I do, but like it's not for him anymore. Like it, it's um, me carrying on his legacy is only to help other people. Absolutely. That's where I think like the cool experience of meeting people and then having that thought just not here too long ago and then having someone come that you haven't met before to be able to share that same thought process is another level of validation. So talk about signs that we were talking about earlier with your brother. Like that's another affirmation of like what I'm doing is is for other people. I've had so many things that have happened in my life that have created people are like, man, you're just unlucky. And I'm like, no, I am probably one of the best people that can relate on every echelon possible. Yes. And I understood that from a younger age that a lot of my experiences, as tough as they have been, weren't for me, it was for to be vulnerable, to be able to relate so that other people know that they're not alone. And so I've understood that for a very long time, which they're like, wow, you're just so upbeat about all the, you know, hardships and turmoil that you've gone through. And it's like, but that's because I'm saving somebody else's life through that. What's not to be excited for. Exactly. And it's all about frame and perspective. So as we were talking about before the show, um, so I got my MRI back in my knee, which I might need to probably talk to you about, but, um, <laughs> so basically they said that my knee is really fucked up and yeah. like, it shouldn't look like this as a 22 year old and I have a meniscus tear. So like grade four chondral defect, like yeah. it's not good. Um, probably cause I did the 38 challenge for 38 days in a row, which might yeah, probably, have done something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but so I've been in a funk, right? Like, yeah. like my, me pushing myself physically is mm-hmm. like a lot of the ways which I deal with my mental health and so when that was taken away from me like I'm still exercising but I can't go on long runs I can't do the hit right. that I was used to doing um so it's forced me to do other things right so I like gotten into cold plunging a lot oh, and good. yeah and doing um you know focusing on meditation and reading but I'm excited that like I'm in this and I'm it's actually been pretty good the last few days but like when I was in it I was like excited I was like man like I'm gonna be so much stronger by the end of this like yeah like I'm going to be able to focus on my knee and my recovery, like, which would make me a better athlete. I'm going to go through this experience and like, am learning how to deal with my depression and anxiety. Yep. And I can relate that and show that to other people. And then I was like, huh, like the old me would probably just have like, let it sit inside and not yeah. tell anyone about it and just make it so much worse. And to the point where it's like, now it's like, okay, I'm going to learn and see how I can confront this and do these I things. I like it. Yeah. Most people don't realize, especially athletes, that the times that they're injured are usually seasons that they have to work through or need to work through more mental and emotional and spiritual items than it is just from a physical perspective. And the moment that, and it could be whatever limitation that it is, it's, or doubt where it's like, if this podcast has been something that you're wanting to make even bigger and better, there's also been moments of hesitation of how. 
and ways. And so yes, absolutely. during those, which causes the anxious and depression to increase like crazy. And it's like, okay, well, I know what I want, but where's the resources and the necessities to be able to achieve that and the direction to do so. So when you're injured, more often than not, those are the times to be able to analyze a lot of that and accept or to receive and sit still because you seem like you're probably one that's like pretty active and on the go constantly. Yeah, it's I've, and so, I have a really hard time sitting still. Like <laughs> That's where yeah. you're going to find most of your answers. And that I think that's the season that this is teaching you the most is to be able to sit still and trust mm -hmm. and believe that like everything that is in your divine right that's supposed to be yours will come yeah. in exactly the most perfect way in the perfect time. Yeah, I need to, I, like, I keep telling myself that. <laughs> and, like, I just actually need to... Um, We've talked about this on the podcast before, but I had really like realized I had a problem with like go, go, go when I yeah. got COVID. And then I was trying to like drink like four cups of coffee. And I was like, like, cause I just got done with the 38 challenge. So yeah. I was like, I was like, dude, don't be a bitch. Like you can do anything. Right? <laughs> right. Like, like this is just, this is nothing. And so I tried to drink four cups of coffee and like still keep working. And I was like, why isn't this yeah. working? And just super quick spiral down. And I was like, okay, like you can't do this. Like this is all about longevity. Like you have a lifelong mission. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's going to take a long, a long time to get there. Yes. And it's okay to walk. Yeah. And exactly. crawl. Yeah. And sit sometimes. Yeah. And I'm learning that. Ice bath been has been has been huge and cold plunge. Like, I'm literally addicted now. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. When you were talking about the anxiety and depression not too long ago, one of the best ways to, like, sit still with that or to clear it is actually salt baths. Mm. And not Epsom salt. Like, Morton salt. I think that's what it is. Um, you know the iodized Morton salt for, mm -hmm. like, table salt? You put it in like the bath or if you didn't like want to take a bath, like in the shower, you would just put it on your body and the the salt helps absorb the energetic like surroundings, like the high intensity of energy around you, like the depression, whatever it is that you're feeling. And you don't want to do it more than 15 minutes because otherwise you're sitting in more of like emotional puke, if you will. And then you just yeah. rinse it off. And it's not like you're all of a sudden like happy or excited, but it takes the intensity of whatever emotional state that you're in and it just normalizes it or takes it away. And it like collects within the salt itself and then goes down the drain and you send it with blessings. But it's- What's what the it, science behind that? Like what is, like how does that work? Um, From an energetic state. So like if I, I can manipulate your energy right now if I wanted to. Okay. So if I wanted to start to feel like anxious or sad or- um. Don't do that. Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I see. Do you feel awkward yet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kinda, yeah. So if I start to like do random things where I'm like, oh my gosh, or I start to get quiet, you're like, what the heck's going on? Does she just have like a seizure? Is like she okay? Yeah. Like we can manipulate energy constantly. But when we talk about energy, people are like, oh, this is very foo-foo or it's like, it's, kind of not gonna lie weird. That's, that's where exactly where my head went i know but the fact that i could just change energy just a second ago and that you could feel it means that we can also clean up the energy too so a lot of people what happens when you're like i'm starting to feel anxious or depressed or overwhelmed sometimes what happens is we take on other people's energy so we're when you look at energetic fields we can manipulate up to three feet. From a scientific perspective, we can read machines showing that our energy through our heart rhythms change, which is why I can, if I started to like breathe really heavy or started to like increase my heart rate, yours would naturally do the same. There's yeah. been science where it's like you put a mom and a baby in a different room 
And if the mom starts to calm down, the baby will do the same. Or sometimes with an animal and a baby in a different room, it doesn't matter where we're at. It's energy that's being sent. So have you ever had the the feeling where it's like someone pops in your head and then all of a sudden you're like, I should probably call them. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you do call, usually something's going on, right? Yeah. We call it like an intuition or just a thought, but it's actually this energetic connection that we have with somebody and that we're feeling it. And it doesn't matter where we are in the world. Or if you call someone, they're like, I was literally just thinking about you. Correct. Ooh, I'm getting chills just thinking yeah. about it. Chills are like my like those like truth that yeah. what we're talking about is like right or real. Mm. Um, but yeah, so most people don't clean up energy, their energy daily. So when we think about like brushing our teeth, we know hygiene wise, like we should brush our teeth every morning because we don't want cavities or fillings or whatever the thing is. But we don't think about that as we're brushing our teeth. We just know to do it. And so we, when we don't clean up energetically, we come home with so all the people that we've interacted with, it's an energy baggage that we've held on to, whether it was ours or unintentionally collecting somebody else's. Hmm. So if I came in irritated and angry, you're like, man, was that me that like now I'm starting to feel irritated and you just attached on to whatever I had felt and took it on as your own. And the moment that you took it on as your own, it becomes your responsibility to clean it up. So if you never clean up your energy, that's why you have like weeks and months where it's hard to get out of those states. Yeah. And you're like, I don't even know what's wrong. Or like you start off the day really good and then all of a sudden at the end of the day, you're like, this is just weird. I'm like in a funk or a fog. It's usually because you've collected other people's stuff that you didn't realize that you picked up. Yeah. That's very interesting. So in my mind goes like a couple of places. Like one, I've definitely experienced that like in my own life. Like I won't name who the people are, but it's like when I go back to a certain situation or a certain place, yeah. like I'm always in a funk. Yeah. And it starts to make me think about the energy that might be there. Yeah. And then it also... I'm also like a very, I'm a person that's like, man, I'm super like, I'm overwhelmed. I'm like, like, I'll say that out loud. So now yeah. I'm thinking of myself, like, am I putting these, is my energy rubbing off on other people? A hundred percent. Okay. All day, every day. But then it becomes their responsibility to take it on as their own. So let's just say you started off overwhelmed because there's a lot on your plate. If I choose to take on that overwhelmingness, now it becomes a just problem, not your problem. Because I chose to let it enter my field. I can say... And look at you and be like, okay, I see that you're overwhelmed right now. Is there anything I can do to support you? Like mm -hmm. that would be my response. And so we're also talking about a form of a vulnerability. Yeah. So I've acknowledged it. I'm aware of it. So this is where the awareness is. And I'm going to say like, that's his, that's, that's a you thing, not a me thing. Mm -hmm. I can respect it and I can identify it. I acknowledge it and I can support it, but I'm not going to take it on as my own. So when I work with athletes or executives or whoever, like, there's a lot of vulnerability and like hardships that they come in with, not all the time, but most of the time. And as a practitioner, why they seek or why a lot of us get burnout is because we take on other people's problems as our own. And it's not our responsibility to do so. Our responsibility is to hold space. Most people take that space and hold it on for themselves, but it's usually letting the room do it for them. So this room is holding a space to have a conversation of really intense subjects, yeah. ones that have really high emotional energy to it. But I don't want to collect that. I don't want to hold on to it, but I'll, I'll support you in this space to do so and then give it back to you to deal with. <laughs> so do you feel like that energy in this room? In this room? Yeah. Like what type of energy? Like, like uh, kind of like what you just said, like there's like 
what we do with the 38 challenges, we have yeah. hard conversations, which like I think probably leads to a lot of the issues that I might have in terms of like overwhelm and, you know, just sometimes being in a funk. Like it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of hefty conversations. Like, do you, is that something that you could like, I'm just trying to get my mind around like the whole energy thing. Like, is that yeah. something you can feel or is it just like, Hey, this person, um, like I'm not going to let their emotional state like rub off. On I'll me. give you the example both. So okay. when we first sat down and you were asked like, I wonder like how this will go. Like if will a lot of people see it? Will they not? Mm. What all the things? And you're like, well, I know that they will because I can. What would you say? Um, feel it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Subconsciously, your body already knows what feels good and not feels good. Mm. And then we consciously feel it either through well, once it hits the physical realm of our bodies, then most people who aren't as aware of energy and dynamics of other things, um will wait until it hits the body for them to have a reaction towards it. But there's actually four levels that it hits. So it hits the energetic field first. So when you walk into a room, you're like, ooh, this doesn't feel right. Or you walk by someone, they don't have to say anything. And you're just like, I don't know what's going on with them. And we've had those incidences yeah. where you've walked by people and you're like, ooh, he just, feel, or she doesn't feel great. So it hits energy first, but oftentimes we're like, yeah, whatever though. And then it hits um, your mental state where you're like, this doesn't, this is weird, this is wrong, or this isn't right. Mm -hmm. And then emotionally, it's like, I feel yuck, or I feel overwhelmed, or I feel anxious. The last level is the physical component. So all of a sudden, we're like, now I feel sluggish. Now I have a headache. Now I feel fatigued. Now I feel tired. Once it hits the body, it's already traveled down four different layers, and it's harder to get rid of because it's now injected energetically to the body. And our body holds energy in various spots which causes illnesses and diseases but it starts at the energetic state when it hits which is why when you feel it in your body it can take longer to heal or process That's, through it yeah so as i was you know and still am going through this like state of anxiety depression um like for me, I feel it in my stomach a lot, mm -hmm. and when like that's what like when it gets to my stomach, that's what I'm like, oh shit, like like you're definitely you're definitely going through it. So my my word of encouragement to you would be to realize it when you start to feel it, because like you can feel the like the energy beforehand, like before it even hits the body, and just noticing like, oh, I'm starting to have doubts of like where I'm at, what I'm doing, and the doubt thought then creates the anxiousness, mm -hmm. and the anxiousness if I stay in that state is like, well, I don't know if I could actually make it through this, which then causes me to live more in the past. And if I live more in the past thoughts, then it creates more depression. If I think more about the future of where I'm wanting to go, it creates more anxiousness. So we really want to focus more back on like where I am right now, where are my feet at in this? So more grounding techniques to be in the moment mm -hmm. that allows you just to process right here because that's all that matters. We don't have the control of the future and we don't have control over the past to be able to go and fix things. I do have control over this second right now that I'm in, which lowers all of that intensity. Yeah. I think that's, I've been practicing a lot more mindfulness, like going back to when I had COVID, like that's, yeah. well, it's like the realization when I was like, I have to do this. And then another where I feel like the most present is when I'm super fucking cold and in the water. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's been super helpful as that's well. That's a really good one. Yeah. That's super helpful as well. So what is so in terms of like the um the salt yeah because i'll try it yeah so what is like the protocol on that like you just rub your body in salt or like you put it in a bath like how does that so, how does that work 
the way that my healer energy person that I work, because I do the same thing, because I, so last year when I got a divorce, I was also in the hospital for about three and a half months. I had a hysterectomy that went bad by a doctor. Um, and I signed my divorce papers in the hospital. So it was like one of the darkest years of my life on top of starting a business. So I also was signing a business um, document. Which is very yeah. overwhelming and anxious. Yeah. So much. And having to do design items through the hospital while going through surgeries and not being able to see my two kids. I have a three-year-old and an 11-year-old. So I was alone for a lot of that and then feeling even more alone through not having like my spouse with me that that was breaking down. So during that process, like it was fucking hell. And I had to question everything at one point. Like the doctors were like, just you either fight or the worst is happening. And I'm like, I can't leave two kids here. But there was moments where I absolutely went, I was like, it would just be way easier to die. Like it would just be so much easier to not have to keep fighting and like all my debt goes away. And like the kids, I have a really good insurance policy, so they'll be fine. So during all of that, like you really have to figure out, I mean, the mental state is the one that controls most of like the behavioral and emotional aspect of it as well and energy wise. So during that process, I had a lot of like energy work because I was manifesting it through my reproductive system, which is where I had a lot of failure through. And after I'd gotten out, my healer was like, or my mentor had told me um, salt baths were the best. And so her protocol was start off with the salt bath. Um, and hers was like, because you're so intense with so much going on at one time to dump two Morton, like the table salt, the little um, canister. So not, not Epsom salt. Not Epsom salt. You can do that afterwards if you want. But just regular table salt. And I do the iodized one. I don't think you have to. But I poured two cans into a bath and you just sit in there for 15 minutes. And after the 15 minutes, you let it drain out because it collects all the emotional intensity. Um, and then you can refill the tub up or you can stand up and take a shower. Or if you don't like baths, you can, she told me that you can just like put salt on parts of your body and just let it sit there for 15 minutes and then rinse off and doing them daily, like as a daily protocol, because it's cleaning all of your energetic state that you've held on throughout the day. There's other tools, um, that we go through that we talk about like statements of like lack or doubt or anxiety that will help be able to allow people to get it out of your system and where it's attached to. But yeah. Very, very interesting. I will try it. Um, and, I, and I will report back. Okay. I'm excited. I had a friend, um, who lost a baby last year. Her, it was an extremely tragic situation. Uh, it was end up being her dog that like bit her daughter's head and hemorrhaged it was she was about to turn one Ooh, i'm getting chills just thinking about it oh my god it was intense and it happened right in front of her in front of the mother mm -hmm. oh my god yeah and end up dying on the way to the hospital and when i came into town like that's all we did was salt baths just to i'm like just sit and i felt up the tub and i'm like because i mean the loss of a kid and a baby like i can't i can't even fathom that amount of yeah, emotional I'm, intensity yeah i can't but, like losing my brother, but then thinking about my mom losing her child is like it's yeah I can't yeah. But during that, like it it just helps with the intensity. Or another one is having salt bowls, um, in the house to collect the energetic state. So the place that you were talking about that is like high toxic energy, um, you'll just get like a glass of water even if you wanted, and you put the salt in there, and you just let it sit out for twenty four hours, and then you dump it out. 
and then refill it up. So it collects all the energy, the crystals in the, in the salt collect the energy and then you're dumping it out. So is there like, is there, are there studies that have been done on this that like people can go? There's look? a lot. I think someone just did, um, I would, I'll have to get them for you. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'll link them. Um, yeah, that'd be great. I'm going to try it and yeah. I'll, as a, um, do it for like at least a week or two. Okay. We'll do. Okay. So let's, let's play around in that moment when you were in the hospital. Yeah. So would you say that that is the darkest moment of your life or has there been times which are? There's been several. Um, when I first got pregnant, I was a super driven person. I knew exactly what I wanted. I wanted a career. I wanted to make a ton of money. And I was 23 and having a baby in my second master's program, devastated, unsure that I even wanted the baby, loved my daughter. So like publicly, this was like, if she ever saw him, like, I love you. But I don't think a lot of people talk about that part of like the regret and guilt. The day that I was breaking up with her dad was the day I found out that I was pregnant. And because he had been gone with like several women at that point. And I didn't know what to do with a kid. My family would joke like, everyone's going to have kids before you and all the things. So that was really hard to accept that I felt like I was going to have, like my whole life was going to have to change. And it did. And there is a time in the tub where I'm like, maybe this would be easier if I just drowned myself than having to go through it. But I have an incredible amount of faith and belief um, in Christ that at that time, I'm like, there's no way that I could take somebody else's life, let alone my own, um, and more fearful of like where I would be afterwards and her. So it was, I knew that in that moment in the tub that I had to realize like, she's worth so much more and I would want, like, I, she needs and deserves so much more. So why would I short that from her? And she ended up being like the greatest lesson that I could have ever get been given, like the best. It was really hard. It took almost nine months for me to have, not have to, but to learn to accept that I had a kid because my mother instincts didn't jump in right away. It took me until we went to Fort Bragg for me to actually have a connection because I had really bad postpartum depression that a lot of people don't talk about or that understand from a mom's aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of women go through it, but a lot of people don't. Postpartum, can you describe? Yeah, so after having a baby... A lot of women get really, really depressed of like the way that their body looks, Um, the way that their body isn't theirs, like having to breastfeed the after this is kind of a lot. But after you get home from the hospital, like the girls private parts are they're sore, they're bleeding. It's there's just so much stuff that happens to a female's body that it just hurts. And then like when you're tired, it's not the guy that's having to wake up to, to like feed the baby. You're having to wake up to do all of the feeding, mm. Some depending yeah. if they do formula or not. Um, and then just the resentment that I had initially of like, this isn't what I wanted or pl- not that I wanted. It's not part of the plan. It wasn't part of the plan. I didn't know that I wanted it or that I needed it. Um, now knowing it was everything that I needed and everything that I wanted So it took me a while. My mom had to come into town to take care of her the first several months and to help me try to attach to her. And sometimes the mothers can like reject the baby and so much of their depression where it's just like, and it's not that they resent the baby. It's just they don't know how to connect because they're so depressed. It it is depression. Um, 
And it wasn't until we were on our own that I was able to understand like, okay, it's just me and her. So not that it was forced, but I had to take care of her. So the connection of like everything that the motherly instincts just finally kicked in. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can take a little bit longer for some women to be able to get to that state. Yeah. So that was one of them. And then the second one was last year. um, Got it. So, and one of the points going back to like the energy thing. So are you still a believer? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Cause like, like I have these in, I had to check my own biases and stigmas and stuff because like when I thought of energy, I was like, I don't know about the whole like rubbing yourself in crystal type thing, you know? (laughs) Yes. Um, But that's like my, but then. I'm going to reach over for something. Yeah, you're good. That's also um, like, it's the same thing with psychedelics, right? Like, because when I first heard about psychedelics, I was like, because I like, I'm a believer myself. And I think when you grow up in like a traditional sense and you think it's like that, like some of these things might be bad or like you are, you know, false idols or or whatever it might be. But it's like, and then I had a conversation with a, um, a former Navy SEAL who swears by psychedelics and I, I'm now I'm like completely <laughs> fascinated in that space yeah. and I think that it um, is a very big part of the future of, of mental health but when I was talking to him I was like how did that did it affect your relationship with God he's like it strengthened it yeah like psychedelics strengthened my relationship with God like I saw things that um, I didn't know if I believed before the experience but now I do after it so what is your I guess take with like the because that's like when I thought like energy I was like can't go against my, <laughs> I don't want to go against my boy, uh, uh, Jesus up there. Like, I don't no. want to, yeah. So it's the same. So I have been, I grew up Catholic and then I liked the churches that all my friends got to go to that had like all the singing and you got to like do all the cool activities. So I had told my mom, like after being confirmed, I'm going to be a Christian. And then I went into Christianity. So I think of like, I, so I, I believe in God. And I also believe that energy is God. So the God within and the energy that we feel, the the way that we create and manifest is through like the one, which is God. And everything that... It's like the spirit aspect would be energy essentially. Yeah, it is. Which, yes. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you do define God in, in that way. Now, different religions have put different titles on things, but they're all in the same form of energy or spirit or divine or infinite intelligence which is like the power of God. Um, same thing, because when I was like talking to this, my energy healer, mentor, all the things, I'm like, I have a really strong faith in God. Like he has given me everything that I could possibly dream of and then some. Like even all the hardships, like is what I I knew that I needed to go through too. And she's like, no, no, no. Like I believe in it too. And I'm like, okay, but we're talking about like same thing, yeah, right? Yeah. So this was just like a year ago that right. I, I have started to dabble into this. And I'm like, Okay, and it wasn't until this book, so it's called The Game of Life and How to Play It. Um, this one talks about a lot of energy also with scripture. Like it mm. talks about God as law. So when you're reading the Bible, it will say like, um, think about like Lord I or, yeah. I, if you open it up, I have like everything written yeah, yeah. and highlighted. I've gone through it. It's like my own little Bible. It's incredible, but it will talk about like love, prosperity, love, love, the karmic world of like how what I do or say onto others, how it ends up coming back to me. But because of God, um, it's the most amazing thing in the world. I like, I live by it now. I mean, it's also by living like through principles of God though. Yeah. Right. But there's like, there's there's another book called um, winning the more in your mind by, have you you read that one? I haven't read that one. Yeah. It's a really good one, but it's a similar thing. So it talks about, um, you know, the, 
the modern theories on and what is proven for for yep. neuroscience and, and your mental health, but then tying that back to scripture, which is I thought it was a yeah, it's an awesome like I love those type of books. Same. And that's also a book you can give to a non-believer, correct? Who is like like if you hand them a Bible, they're gonna be like, eh. but if you hand them a book that is like science and like it's like hey, this you'll get impact from it, then they can maybe learn something about faith as well. Absolutely. So I see it as all of one. Like energy is God. God is energy. God is law. Law is God. Like the law of the universe is what God's laws are through scripture, all the things. So Mm. they're all one of the same. People just put different labels on it. So then we go back to the whole thing of like, I don't like to put labels. It's an easier way when we talk about creating vulnerability with people of having so many different ways to say the same thing, to be able to have people to open up. And it's in the moment that they open up, the infinite or divine ability to receive what is yours by divine right becomes easier because you become vulnerable of opening up to like the principles, oops, sorry, of the universe and all the things. So, that's, yeah. That's fascinating. That's, yeah, okay, I'm pumped now. Um, <laughs> Which is not something I've learned in school. It's been through like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, just yeah, for sure. people that I've connected with. So went down that rabbit hole, bring it back. So so you've had these two, what you recall like the darkest moments, right? A lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, um, suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. I think I think one of the things that people, almost every, I think, yeah, almost every guest I've had on so far, like it's a common theme that like suicidal ideation, I think is not the, not the, hey, how am I going to take my life? Which some people do, right. but the thought of like, like you said, like, It'd be easier if I drown in this. Yeah. Or, um, it'd be easier if I wasn't here. Right. Like in the, it, yeah. Like, yeah. like, what would mm-hmm. happen if I if I drove my car into this? You know. Yeah. Like, like I think those thoughts are much more common because people are terrified of them and mm-hmm. they like they bottle them in. But that's a, a point I always like to make is like I've had those thoughts. Like you've had those thoughts. Like I think if people are being honest, like more people than not have had those. Oh, absolutely. I've had those thoughts. I think that we're all susceptible to them. And I think that we all have them in a different form or fashion, whatever that case may be. Um, And especially when you feel loss of something that you felt or expected was yours. Does that make sense? So Mm -hmm. like I've noticed in your language, the reason, is it okay if I like go go down that road? Yeah, go ahead. So even just hearing you talk, the way that you say like, I need to do this or I can't do this or I have to do this, those are words of expectations. And when the more that I have in talk like that with form of expectation, the moment it doesn't happen is where I feel the loss of anxiousness, fear, doubt, worry, insert the emotion. And if that expectation didn't look like what I thought it was going to look like, and then if I were to ask you like, well, what was it supposed to look like? You're like, I don't know, just not this. Mm but nobody can be clear on what that expectation was or looked like. So then it's like, I just knew it wasn't supposed to be here, but we don't have a clear vision of what that is. So we stay in the state of depression as well until we can not hold on to the expectance of something. We can have desire, we can have wants, but it's it's through God's will of what that desire for your life's plan or prosperity right, is. Right. And so we hold on to our own personal will of this expectation, which is why we also fall down into that those dark states too. Mm. Hell yeah. <laughs> I like that. I, I don't know if I want to go like full, because there's two ways we can go. Like one, like let's completely work on me right now, but I think that that would be <laughs> selfish. Um, we can do that a different time. Um, so when you were dealing in these times of, depression and anxiety like what did the day-to-day look like and feel like to you because I also think that's important for other people to relate to yeah um 
I think the first with my daughter, it was I felt like I didn't have a partner. So her dad um, was out drinking the day that I found out the sex of the baby. And I didn't even want to look at the sex of the baby because I wanted like I envisioned the time that I was going to be pregnant was I was going to have this loving husband be in a relationship like it was going to be this magical partnership. And I didn't feel like I had that. So I had a really hard time accepting where I was at with it um, all the way through. So tons of tears, lots of tears, a lot of self-soothing of like, why me? How come? All those things. Mm -hmm. Um, Rather than like looking at the blessings that I'm getting in between. In the hospital, a ton of freaking tears. Um, This last go around was like, I'm. it's happening again. Because I had met my ex-husband um when my daughter was about four and he ended up adopting her and so i'm like i'm doing this to her again this is like and that was one of the other parts was the guilt that i was having that all of everything that's happening to me it's also happening to the kids and so i'm like i'm the one that's creating this for them and i had to realize that we're all on different journeys and that god's journey for me was to go through these experiences and she was supposed to be on this journey too for her own life's plan and action like yeah and it, it, this lesson that she's creating, like her journey or path is for her to work through, even though, yes, I've had, I wouldn't say like I wanted those things or two bad relationships to happen. It just, it did happen. But every, I can't own her journey, if that makes sense. Like yeah. that is her journey that she'll end up having to work through and I get to help support her. And she's in counseling. We started her in counseling at a really young age too. And she understands so much more than any other adult could possibly, not by like definitive, but she is extremely in tune to emotions and feelings and thoughts. And I remember at one point she was like, mom, which dad loved better? And I'm like, well, whoa, <laughs> how do you answer that one? <laughs> Jeez. And I was like, well, honey, I don't think one loved Let's better, on podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> She's, she'd be great. Um, and we're very open. And I think that's the other thing. Like I've yeah. been super vulnerable with her and she's seen me cry. And I, I'm super open about like mommy's struggling right now she doesn't have to know every detail but like mommy's struggling but it's okay this is what we're going to work through with it Mm. so she gets to know that like okay my mom's not perfect either but if she can get through it then i can get through it we talk a lot about like those emotions when people at school and it's tough and she's had a really tough day or big emotions like what do we do through those but to that answer i said well i don't think any anyone loved differently i think that they love to their like to their capacity but mommy's heart knew that she needed more and that's okay too, to listen to our heart. But I think that they did love to the best of their ability that they could, but every person has different needs and we attend to those needs. Does it make them wrong? Does it make them bad? And I was like, whew, cut out of that one. And she's like, okay. And I was like, but how cool at 11 years old, you know what kind of love that you want. Yeah. You know that you want a dad that's present or a spouse that's present or a boyfriend that's present. You know that you want a dad that like, talks to you that's affectionate that gives you affirmations or that you want a spouse in that way like later down on the road i was like most people don't get that type of wisdom and experience until they're way older but you get that experience at 11 Mm -hmm. and she was like oh yeah she's like yeah because i definitely want this this and this and i'm like so just spinning it to like the experience of what she the blessing that she gets out of it versus what she's lost yeah and i think you have to because a lot of the times people are like um because i'm only 22 so people are like I'm obviously like I have a lot more probably wiser beyond my years might say. Um, and I'm like, like, how old are you? I'm like, oh, like on paper, or like yeah. years of trauma or right. like, you know, or like um, impact. Because I yeah. think like age is like 
like you said, your loving old daughter, she's been through so much. Like I've been through things besides my brother and things mm-hmm. after my brother. And it's like, now I look at them as I'll never thank God for taking my brother. I've tried. It's just not something I can yeah. come to terms with, but I understand why it happened. I understand that it was hit part of um, his plan for me mm-hmm. and is part of his plan for, for, for Absolutely. Matt. Um, yeah. That's a hard one to accept. It is. Yeah. And maybe one day, but so, and because of your experiences that you face, like now your daughter's 11 years old and like she is going to be better because of it too. So I think that's so important. I think it's important to note that like this, these dark, dark moments, they are like anything are moments that are just going to pass and you will learn something from them and you'll be better because of it. Right? 100%. Like, like you said, like it's not a label. Like I am not depression. I am right. not anxiety. I'm mean, just experiencing it. Right. And it's like you have to be like, okay, this is going to suck and like it, it is what it is for a little bit like here are the things that i'm going to do in order to get through it and i'm gonna become a better person because of it you ready to hear what to get rid of it yeah it's in here somewhere it's usually about like casting the burden so it's like i cast the burden of blank so i cast the burden of anxiety resentment frustration insert whatever the experience is and then onto christ within to be able to be like free open um, happy and whatever the insert, what you're wanting out of it. So when I cast away the anxiousness, the depression to God or whatever, you know, religion it is that they're affiliated with, then you say, then I go free with being blank than it is with whatever. So our job isn't to hold on to it. That's why there's an infinite spirit, divine energy, law, blank, that we give it away so that we are fully experiencing to our fullest potential yeah, God, of whatever it God is. God tells us to, to cast our anxieties onto him. Correct. Yeah. But I think that we often forget to do that. I, I forget all the time to do that. <laughs> Same. Yeah. I, I was just doing it the other well, day. I'm like, all right. All right, God, I'm casting it onto you. Like, yeah. All right, cool. I'll be like, nope, still feel it. Yep. So I think need to be more intentional with that. So pivoting to your work with high performers how so from special operators to olympic athletes to high level c-suite executives how prevalent is anxiety depression um mental illness with them it filters i don't think anybody escapes from it i don't think it's the position i think it's the person um and i think oftentimes we declare that if only you're at the highest level do you experience it and that's not the case we have it all the way down from like infancy that you can see a baby being startled all the way up to someone who's in those high performer roles, higher performer roles. I, th- this is, I'm putting an expectation to it cause I'm about to hear myself say it. I feel that they have more of a responsibility, um, to themselves and to like the exposure of what is seen in public to really be open and vulnerable about their experiences. I mean, you're in a higher platform and setting and being seen 24 seven. And oftentimes it's like, we have to show up as who people expect us to be versus who I really am inside. There's, I mean, you don't have to obviously have your whole life shared in front of everybody, but I think that when you're in a role that dictates leadership, understanding that people are people are people, that it's okay for other people to feel just as you are, um, so you're saying that not because I feel like a lot of people will hide it, but you think that it is their responsibility to be open with it. I think it's part of their role that they should be. Yeah. Agreed. hundred yeah. percent agreed. 
because if I'm expecting other people to be open and vulnerable, then I sure as hell should be as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you're wanting productivity, let's talk about like executives for a second. In the C-level suites, they're about productivity and ROI. I mean, bottom line. Mm-hmm. But yet they're the ones that are often going home with more domestic and substance abuse, the ones that I've worked with in the past, than anybody anybody else. I mean, you also see it in like first responders and in tactical athletes, if you will. The athletes that are in like Olympic settings or in um, collegiate settings, they're more substance abuse related and high anger than it is more domestic. Sometimes there is, not all the time. Um, in the professional athletes for like football and basketball, those type of sports will have more domestic disputes than you'll see in like gymnastics or like fencing or um, it's interesting to see like differences in in the sports the way that they take it out in. Mm-hmm. What about the military community? Military has domestic and more um, substance abuse as well mm-hmm. that I've seen and noticed. Um, and and when I say domestic, it doesn't always have to be like physical altercations. It could be emotional abuse as well. So a lot of them coming home and it's just like get the fuck out of my face. Like what are you doing? Like and so it's constant shame to the partner when they feel shame. And so we. I see a lot of projection rather than internal reflection. Mm-hmm. That was really good. Like, rhyme. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, I think a lot of people, the more in those high professional roles, if they can do more self-reflection, then they limit the ability to project onto others. Yeah, I think, and the reason I asked that question is because like a lot of, I think people need to understand that like these feelings of depression and anxiety, like they are not unique. They do not discriminate. Like everyone, everyone faces them and you need to, we all need to be vulnerable and ask for help when we need it and have these like open conversations, not have them be so damn uncomfortable. Cause it's, Correct. Yeah. It's normal. Yeah. <laughs> like, and the weird thing that, well, it's not weird. I think that what most people don't realize, it doesn't matter what level that you're at, you'll experience it at every level. So if I'm first starting out like as a, as a high school athlete or let's just say middle school athlete, I'll fill it there. If I get better and I'm doing better as an athlete and I've gone to the next level, and now I'm like on a competitive team, like I feel it there. It's just on a different plane. And then once I get into college and I'm playing on a college level, it's a different level of plane. Now I'm at an elite level professional. It's all still there. It just manifests and turns into different like aspects or experiences, but you're still working through it because that's like the human nature to every level go up. So even if you're a first level employee all the way to a C, C level suite, um, you're going to still have those same experiences. It's just going to alter different. So when I talk about this in the realm of money, if I, like, I just started my own business and I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get all these athletes in? I have bills to pay. So the lack mentality is there. I'm like, there's never enough time. There's lack of time. There's lack of resources, lack of financial stability. Um, I just made like the most I've ever made in my company this year. And I'm like, yeah, but, so I've just reached a new echelon, but I'm like, but we don't have enough time and we don't have enough resources, enough enough money. So that lack mentality, I constantly have to work through to keep reaching and receiving what is supposed to come in for me. Hmm. So with, with these, you know, quote unquote high performers, what is usually like the cause of their 
anxiety, depression? Like, is it, is it performance? Is it overwhelm? What is usually like the, what do you see as like a constant? Expectation. Okay. That's similar to what you said earlier about Mm -hmm. myself. Yeah. Yep. And you can hear it in the way that they talk. So my favorite thing to do is watch interviews after like really high performance games. And it's like, man, if we would have just done this, it, we needed to be in this type of mindset or, um, we should have done blank. So words like shouldn't or should have, wouldn't, don't, need to, have to, those are all words that are expectations that create shame. Mm -hmm. Um, And shame can manifest into like, you know, like embarrassment, regret, doubt, whatever. So I often see it as an expectation. I just had um, an athlete, they were at Worlds not too long ago. And it's like, I expected just to, I expected to medal, even though their goal was to hit finals but that now it became a different expectation right like afterwards like yes that would have been nice but like we still met our goal we still did what we needed to do um and i think that the moment that our expectations shift to an unrealistic one or one that is um doesn't form appreciation of the effort and work that you've done in between that's where the ancient the anxiety the depression the overwhelming feelings start to step in cuz the emotions again come in secondary I feel that so hard and like it makes a lot of sense honestly why I deal with anxiety and depression because it's always like I mean um in terms of like growth and like it's like I always say like now I'm, th- I'm thinking about <laughs> it on myself right I'm like well now like we have to have like how we have to show people how our impact like we have to go out and like get dollars like we have to just right. doing the expectations like I can definitely <laughs> see how that's leading to yeah anxiety so then what words so if we shouldn't use shouldn't <laughs> Should've. and have to and need to what words are there like specific words that we should so this use? is like my favorite part so this is part of the techniques that we do in our in our practice um let's let's use one of your statements what do you want to use um in terms <laughs> of like the just business yeah or yeah whatever um, you want to say uh we need to show donors how to how we impact people okay so what do you want to have done or like what do you want what's the opportunity that you want i want to show people that we're like more than just like a pot like i want to have like numbers uh-huh i can hear myself doing it. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that wild once you get it yeah it's so cool though but yeah i want to have numbers to show direct impact because right now i know that we have a message that's helping people but i can't quantify it okay so then I would say like it's easier when we write it out, but because then you get it out of your system and then we can actually play with the words. So um, it would be in a frame that creates. So a lot of that is control. So I break down statements either in safety or control that like we won't do anything in this world unless we feel safe and we feel like we have control. And safety can come in the form of like if you came in and said, you know, Dr. Dress isn't really that credible I would feel like my safety would be threatened because of my credibility. I would feel like I'd have been exposed or if I messed up in the podcast, I'd be like, oh my gosh, like I feel threatened that I'm not enough for here, right? So I would want a statement that either creates safety in my body so that I don't feel the anxiousness, overwhelming and depression. Um, if it's about control and I'm like, well, he's dominating this podcast. Like I, I expected to say more of this, this and this. Now it becomes about control and I have to find a statement that eases or where it's like, no, you do have control over blank. So we only operate or take action if one of those two things or both are happening. And sometimes they're really close together too. 
So in the I need to statement that you created, do you feel like it's more of a safety thing that if you don't do it, then you're not like financially being taken care of? Is it more that you don't feel, um, do you feel like your character is being exposed or is it that I don't know what action to take next, which would be more of a control statement that we would create? I think action to take next. That's what I think so too. Yeah. So then I would say um, we create a control statement that allows your body to feel like you're in control. And so it's like we have a clear message um, that allows us to connect with others or it's like the right resources show up blank. So finding a way to reframe it that allows your body and system to feel like it does have control. Like the numbers are showing up in um, views. So like we start there, like just starting where we do see the numbers and then saying, and now instead of like, well, we have to, or the yeah, buts is another really good one that people say for expectations. So I just give you a compliment on like how many views that you had on a podcast and you're like, yeah, but it it's not giving us enough data. So I'm not accepting where I'm at that allows for that control to continue. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So, and that's super helpful. I'm going to talk a lot more of that <laughs> offline. Uh, but I, I hope that people got, you know, something out of that, right? That they can look into their own lives. Because like I, like you just like kind of spun me around a little bit. It's awesome. <laughs> so when these high performers, we'll keep saying that word, um, I'm especially interested in both yeah. athletes and special operations because it's kind of the community that we serve with mm-hmm. brain injuries and vulnerability. So what are some, and you've already talked about some actionable takeaways, right? That was one of them. The salt's another one. What are things and exercises or tips and tricks that you have these high performers or yourself or whoever when they're dealing with thoughts of and feelings of d- depression, anxiety? What are like the... A really good one is writing a letter to it. So like identifying it as like dear anxiety or making it have a name is a really good one. So like you can say like Alice the anxiety or like Alice whoever, like give it a name of some sort. Or you could just simply just put in the emotion and then writing a letter of like what it feels like, what it's doing to you and how you're going to release it on paper so that it's what we're trying to do is just get it out of the system. Right. So the more that I can separate myself from the anxiousness because it's not who I am, it's just what I'm feeling. Then I'm allowing myself to pause for a second to be able to then take action what I want to do. Mm. Deep belly breath. So writing a letter deep belly breathing is a really good one. Um, we talk, a lot of people talk about mindfulness and I think that's great, but there's different breath forms that allow for different levels of intention. Mm -hmm. And so deep belly breathing allows your system to go into what we call a state of coherence, where there's a balance between your fight and flight and your rest and digest. When I'm in a state of balance, I'm then able to react to whatever the conditions are in my environment. So if I need to quickly move, then I can increase like my heart rate and actions to take action. Or if I need to get to a restful state, then I can slow myself down and get to a more like rest and calm demeanor. But I need to be at that state of balance to be able to have that cognitive awareness, physical and emotional awareness to be able to do so. And deep belly breathing allows you to do that. And then you tell it what you want it to do. So that's two. We talked about reframing. And I wouldn't say that reframing right now would be the best for people to go and try on their own right because it's really i mean it took us a second to have to work through Mm because we have to identify what it is in the system is it safety or control but right now just being aware of the language is so critical that causes so many more emotional statements or like emotional reactions in the body so 
noticing when you say that I need to do this, I have to do this, and how we talk to other people, like, hey, you need to do this. Instead of saying um, things along the lines of like, I appreciate the effort today, and now let's go and do blank. So telling myself what I am going to do or am doing versus what I need to do, because it's still drawing in the future, which can create the anxiety of this list of tasks that I just created that I have to or need to. And if I don't, you just failed and didn't meet that expectation. Mm. Um, and then the salt baths, I would say for now. I mean, there's a bazillion more techniques that we could get into, but yeah. not to overwhelm. <laughs> yeah, where are we at, Lucas, with time? A minute, an hour and 11 minutes. Um, I would think we need to do a part two because like I want want to ask a bunch more questions, but I don't want this to go two hours. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because like that goes into like, I now have questions about to-do lists. Like what are the best ways to do? There's so many ways. This could be like a monthly series. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's make it one. Done. Um, Okay. So we've got our takeaways. We've talked about what anxiety and depression look like to you. We talked about ways you got through it we talked about what it can look like in high performers so i think we put a pin in it for now yeah my question to you before you leave um one piece of advice for someone who is in the bathtub right Mm -hmm. or in the hospital or wherever and they have those same feelings of man maybe it'd be easier if i wasn't living right now what would your piece of advice to them be I would say that you're not alone as much as it feels in those moments that you are alone. Cause I think in each of those times, like you feel like you're at your darkest state and there's nobody else that can understand you that can relate to you or that they're going to come and save you. Um, that's not true. You are never alone as much as you think that you are. Cause we are all energetically connected and that you are so destined for so much more, which is why you're through, you're going through that process. A Phoenix doesn't just like die and then get reborn for no reason. And in the hospital at that moment, I had a friend that sent me, um, their church had prayed and whatnot and had sent me their broadcast. And it was talking about, because I'd asked several times of like hearing his voice, hearing God's voice and like, is this really what you have planned? Like why all the things? And it was talking about um, shedding all of the things, like I'm, I'm shedding you naked basically, which I was like, well, yep, I am naked in the hospital. So thank you. But it's like, I'm, I'm, in the way that they had said it, I don't think that God deliberately tries to break you down, but in their podcast or in their frame, it was like, I, I'm i breaking down everything old of you, shedding you from it so that when I say go, that you know that it's me. And I had struggled for so long of like, okay, well, is that you or is this you? Is this you or that you? And so I had asked over and over again, like, I need to hear and know that it's you. And I'm like, okay, well, next time you don't have to go to that that level of depth for me to hear you, but clearly he did. Um and so he's like, I have great things destined for you, but when I know, I need you to know that you know my voice. And I had questioned the voice several times. Not that I questioned him in belief, but like to knowing that it was his for me to call to take to action. And so it was like, because when I say go, I need you to run. And if I say stop, I need you to stop and sit and wait until I hear another go to go again, which I thought was pretty fascinating. I'm like, oh, and in that moment it clicked and it was like, got it. And it was in one of those moments where I had questioned things too. And my friend had sent me a a message and I was like, done, got it. And then my attitude changed. I rapidly started getting better in the hospital. Hmm. It was wild. That is wild. Yeah. One of the things, um, which I'll send you over the book, when in the more in your mind, but one of the things it talks about is like, you know, when you're like, let's say 
just give a war, for example, like if I was in the middle of a battlefield, which our minds are a battlefield. Yep. That's what the whole book talks about, winning the war in your mind. And there's, you know, um, you know, heavy artillery and all these things and grenades and all this stuff going by you. And there's so many other things going on and you maybe can't hear God's voice. It's because um, like you don't don't listen for a loud voice, listen to a whisper. And the reason why God whispers to you and so you have to quiet and like hone it in is because yeah. he's always so close. It's yeah. like he's not shouting at you from a distance. It's right. like he he whispers and that's how you hear his voice because he's always right there. Yeah. And you just have to take the time and you have to trust in him. And like you said, um, and I say this like hypocritic hypocritically <laughs> almost because it's like I don't do a great job of this, but it's like it's something that I'm working towards. Just hearing yeah. that whisper. So I would tell you like don't is one of those words. Yeah. So then I would say like I'm continuously learning how to, to trust God. Yeah. Not how to, just I'm learning to trust God. Rather than because you just put another expectations like I don't do it. So it's like, see, there's another thing I didn't do well or don't do well. Mm. Another thing I don't live up to. God, this is awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, last question. Yeah. What does the 30-day challenge, our organization, what does it mean to you? What does it mean? It means that you guys are able to reach out more than just a small little population, that you guys are able to connect with other people, be vulnerable, and be able to tell stories that enrich other people's lives, even through hardship. Cool. Well, this will not be the last conversation we've had. (laughs) I'm looking forward to going into other areas of expertise. But Dr. Jess Garza, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it more than you know. Awesome.